Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined first and foremost on today's programme by Paul Jarrah. Paul is the CEO of Spear Hunter, a company that specialises in pipeline inspection. Paul, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you for joining us, Paul. It's a real pleasure having you with us. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to establish initially your take on leadership. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is being put to the test, perhaps more so than ever during our time with the emergence of the COVID-19 situation. Tell me, how has your company changed to meet the challenges of the pandemic? Because I can imagine that they have been tremendous. Very significantly. Uh, I I mean, COVID-19 travel restrictions hurt us very badly. Um, as you can imagine, you know, with the, the line of business that we're in, um, most of our income comes from inspecting pipelines out in the field in different countries, well, in fact, all around the globe. Um, and, and uh, of course, you know, with, with the travel restrictions in place, we're not allowed to travel. And so on the face of it, you would think that uh, we couldn't inspect pipelines at all until all travel restrictions were lifted. This um, in different countries, uh, it would be possible for businesses uh, in this line of work still to go out into remote places in the field and do the line inspections. And so uh, the major change that we made was to accept the fact no longer can we uh, send our own people to different locations in the world. What we'll do is establish links with, with other companies in those countries and them how to use um, uh, what I consider actually to be a very professional um, uh, uh, modular training course and you know this uh, the content of it was very good it was comprised of um, a mixture of uh, PowerPoint slides and uh, video uh, explanations and uh, it was sent uh, over to clients who would buy into this and uh, and also worked along with live streaming you know so what they were doing they we, we sent the equipment to them um, they were then uh, looking through the various modules um, there would be live streaming with our own people in, in our own office um, who, who would be ready to answer any questions if anything was not clear and at the end of each module uh, there would be a test. This lasted for a week and uh, eight hours a day. Everybody who's been training on in this way uh, uh, sat an examination and passed it, thankfully. And in that way, we were able to continue the inspections out in the field. So they would data themselves, send it to us. We would analyze it and produce the final report. So in this way, we've managed to keep going. Mm, certainly seems as if um, sort of you've been busy adapting to meet the uh, the challenges of the pandemic uh, for sure there, uh, Paul. Um, with regards to sort of that experience that you've had of managing this so far, would you say that there's anything that you've taken away as a business leader that you've learned from this experience? Well, I, I think flexibility and also, you, you know, I mean, there is also a need to respond to like, I remember once the first one I was, you know, I think it was from a president in America who said, what does change mean in the dynamics of society? 
and so, and I think we have to bear that. Like you know that everything does change, and we always respond to it. Otherwise, we can't survive. And you know, I mean, there, there are many times. As much as we try, I mean, we do risk assessments, and you know, we make uh, we have mitigation type policies in place. I mean, we're looking at this all of the time, but always there's the potential for a surprise and COVID was a major surprise to us all. And I, I think, um, you know, the, 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 the way that we changed our, our business model together, actually, I would say with, with government financial help um, has seen us through this crisis. And I have to say, you know, we, we, we now will be operating in two ways. One is the way that I've just described, but also we still have our, our uh, field personnel and they're off uh, to Estonia on Sunday, the flying out 6 a.m. on Sunday, you know, to do some work in the field in uh, Eastern Europe. With regard to the uh, the government's leadership of the pandemic, of course, it's introduced some unprecedented measures to safeguard business with the uh, the furlough scheme, of course, being one of them, small business loans being another. But there's been a great deal of debate about sort of safety guidelines, just how clear they've been to allow businesses to continue working in a safe manner and also for those that are reopening to do so in a safe manner as well. Um, have you been satisfied, Paul, throughout this pandemic that you've always known exactly what's been expected of you at a particular time? And that continues to be the case indeed going forward from here and there is a clear route now. Yes, I'm I absolutely satisfied. I mean, we have um, consultants who, who read government guidelines in detail and then can brief us on the content, you know. So um, we, we, we're, we're fully uh, educated, I would say, you know, as, uh, as the government gives its guidelines and uh, introduces new regulations. So, yes, I, I would say from our point of view, it, it, you know, it was very clear. And I suppose that when there is so much uncertainty and so much worry, especially in the earlier stages of the uh, the pandemic, I'm thinking of here, I suppose a natural reaction for somebody who's an employee at any business is to look up the hierarchical ladder for that little bit of direction and inspiration that they need. They look to their managers, they look to their executives. But when you're the uh, the person at the top of the tree running the business, as it were, and there's nobody above you to refer to, where is it that you look to when you sort of need that just little bit of inspiration? inside myself i mean sometimes uh, you know i could be taking a shower and it's a eureka moment you know i mean they're, they're, it, you you cannot depend on anybody in this situation i mean it is entirely it's very much the buck stops here and i and i enjoy it you know they, it's um I, i've no problems with a challenge give me a problem and i'm happy to solve it and thinking of, of course, um, again, the fact that people do react to sort of different things differently, let alone a crisis such as this, how has it been sort of holding everything up at the business from a mental health and well-being perspective? Because I can imagine that that might have thrown up one or two challenges. Well-being, continuing to travel to the office each day in the early part of the crisis. And, you know, so we quickly put in place conferencing software and and mechanisms that pretty much everybody else did, I suppose. And uh, we, we, I actually found, you know, that uh, our our people began to speak to each other more often, which is remarkable. There's a tendency in, in an open plan office, you know, for people to sit down at their desks and 
uh, you know, do their work on their on their their computer, and at the end of the day, go home. And, and the only interaction socially sometimes is at the end of the day, go to the pub, have a drink together, or possibly, you know, in, in the kitchen making a cup of tea, you know. But um, they, they are the teams are, are tremendously focused on their work, and so they tended not to talk uh, socially with each other very much during the day. That's changed, and mm. it, it's remarkable. So I, I would say, you know. Um, we may have bucked the trend here. I have heard about uh, people's well-being suffering. Um, we hear it on the news. Uh, but as far as our team's concerned, uh, the, those, uh, I mean, it was the vast majority who were kept working full-time, um, have uh, actually enjoyed uh, the new working practices. You know, So they, they talk to each other more often on the phone. We have more video, com- more conferences to talk over issues and problems and find solutions uh, than we did before instead of people sitting down trying to solve them themselves. So I would say, you know, we, we found a new way of working and it's unlikely that we will ever go back to a nine to five, five days a week. Um, so to answer your question about well-being, um, the, you know, the vast majority that stayed on in work full time uh, we're very happy. Uh, their well-being is They have no or, or vastly reduced community. Um, their working hours are totally flexible. So long as the you know, work that is required is done and done on time and done well, it doesn't matter to me whether they're doing like or three in the morning or three in the afternoon. As long as it's done and just uh, everything's. For the one person that we did first, uh, I, I made sure, you know, right from the start that we would pay him um, 100% of his salary uh, because he's good, but there's no point in bringing him in because into an office because, you know, it, he's, his work primarily is field work. And uh, very little else, uh, and uh, <clears throat> and you know, I, I made sure that he was kept up to date with uh, all the changes that we were making, the reasons why, um, and you know, the the various solutions that we were finding to problems, having explained the problems to him first. So, although he wasn't working, I would keep in touch with him regularly each week, uh, just to let him know he was still pretty much part of the team, and we couldn't wait to get him back. So his. Uh, you know his well-being. Also, I, I think uh, has not suffered. I know to begin with, you know, he quite enjoyed the time at home. You know, two weeks off and um, not much to do, and everything was his own time. But like everybody else in those circumstances, I think eventually he got bored and really was looking forward to getting back to work. And and uh, he does this weekend. He sets out for Edinburgh on Saturday overnight in a hotel at the airport and flies out to uh, Elring in uh, um, at six o'clock in the morning and he's looking forward very much to that. So I, I think in our particular case, we've got the trend as far as well-being is concerned. And thinking of the uh, the future now, uh, particularly the next sort of 12 to 18 months, Paul, as we adjust to the uh, the new normal as a uh, society, um, what can yeah. you see on the horizon for yourself and for Spear Hunter, and what do you really hope to achieve during this period? Well, what I would really dearly like to achieve is to have a major customer here in the UK, um, and we don't. 
uh, despite the fact that National Grid uh, invested, um, I, I think it was 1.2 million in developing the, 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 the fundamental technology that we had already developed together with the University of Leeds. Um, uh, you know, the outcome was successful. The deliverables were all met successfully. Um, you know, the, the, the method was approved by National Grid's engineering, but procurements have never bought into it. And, you know, to begin with, I, I was trying hard, you know, to, to, to get them to, to buy into the processes that we have. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it was too difficult to tap. They didn't seem to show any interest. And so off we went abroad, you know. But under circumstances like this, if ever, you know, we needed um, a home base to guarantee our future, it would have been now. Because here in the UK, we could have sent people out in, in, into the field, into remote parts of the countryside. But as I say, the work wasn't there. So, you know, I, I think looking forward, um, I, I shall resume. Uh, contact with National Grid in whatever way that I can. Um, I already, in fact, did write to our local uh, MP who has, uh, she's helping. Um, you know, she, she's now in touch with Ofgen on this. Uh, so we, 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 that, I think that's my major point. I mean, we do have, um, uh, some, um, UK customers. Uh, they're in Scotland. Um, two of them actually are Norwegian owned, but there again, it's nevertheless it's in the UK. And uh, and and you know, as far as the society is concerned, well, I I think you know there is going to be a new normal. You know, I mean, people are not going to travel so much because it won't be so much of a pleasure. I mean, you imagine going to an airport with social distancing, long queues, uh, check-in, bag drop, security. Um, boarding the aircraft, um, disembarking, going through passport control at destination. I mean, it must be horrendous. Um, and, and, you know, if people are going on holiday uh, and having the covering the face, you know, as they're sunbathing, they're going to have a white strip across the lower part of their cheeks. And, and there are so many things that will change. And I, I think also people will become. Um, Certainly, uh, they'll be nervous, uh, the majority of people, that is, nervous about going back into the restaurants, the cafes, the pubs, uh, because, uh, the, you know, after all these months, we're, we're so used to keeping uh, a distance between ourselves. So I, I, I think there will be uh, major changes and, of course, you know, I mean, the, the hospitality industry itself is suffering very, very badly. So there'll be less choices to make. Uh, less, less cafes, less uh, pubs. And I know a few are around. Uh, so I, I think you know, will be very difficult to, uh, to change. And they'll continue, I think, to have an impact on our original business. In as much as uh, we will, in the future, try to wait and get into the field as much as possible. Well, now we'll train them all to replace that. Um, marketing, you know, I mean, traveling around and, and, and presenting to industrial conferences and uh, showcasing technology. Uh, um, you know, this is likely to decrease as well, and, and that does 
actually trouble me a little because you know it, it helps to keep a high profile if uh, we're we're at uh, major industrial conventions. But if 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 they're cancelled, it's not a problem. But if they're not cancelled and we can't get there, that becomes a problem. And somehow we'll have to find a solution to that. Mm. There will certainly be problems uh, to solve on the horizon, but plenty, it seems, uh, Paul, to get your teeth stuck into at Spear Hunter. And I have to say, um, given how informative it's been having you come on and discuss um, this um, experience uh, with, that you've had with us today, I think it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the programme in a few months' time just to see how things behind the scenes are getting on. That would be very Thank you very much. I think it would be fantastic because we can always speculate on what the uh, the future might bring with uh, the COVID-19 situation, but there still are so many variables. Um, Paul, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme today. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with this one yet. Okay, thank you very much and take care. And for those tuning into the programme as well, do continue to be sensible, look after yourselves and others, because it really does make a difference in saving lives. I was speaking today to Paul Jarum, CEO of Spear Hunter, and coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. Despite being blind from birth, in fact, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most renowned politicians of his generation, holding various senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of his old constituency. Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope that you enjoyed listening to the interview just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him and all of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? 
Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's Uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. 
things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself 
is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. Uh, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. 
I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, 
But on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps 
you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the 
Equality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening.
in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.